Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Hello, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me today, as always, is Medievalist Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello. I should be in Kalamazoo, but I'm not. So sad. Oh. <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better, we had snow in the upper Midwest today, so eh. it's not like you're missing great weather. I know, but medievalists. And we'd be drinking anyway, I- so, you know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes, more free alcohol at that conference than any other academic conference. I just want to put that out there. I was going to say, the medieval period <laughs> had its own little mini ice age, too, so it is kind of, like, thematically appropriate, right? Absolutely. Weather of all kinds. Yes. <laughs> We've been having a lot of weather of all kinds um, the last couple of weeks. I assume. Uh, someday it will get warm. Yes. I think weather patterns are like, <laughs> they reverting to, I wouldn't say normal, but sort of what they should be without all the pollution, etc. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I like that idea a lot. But it also makes me sad that I live in a place where you get snow in mid-May. I know. Then. <laughs> well, my senior year, we get snow, like, around prom and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. I guess weather forecasts, supposedly, I don't know if this is true, but have become even more unreliable than usual because planes aren't making trails, right? Which sort of yes. seeds, the, right? And so... Where they can usually assume certain things will be seeded and clouds and et cetera. That's not necessarily happening, which to me is sort of fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I've also heard that planes carry a lot of extra instrumentation, mm-hmm. too. Yes. That, like, they, they're just all reporting back. So Right. And right now they're not. getting that either. So they also don't know what's going on. Yeah. As much as they would normally. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. There's a couple of people out at the Middleton Airport one guy who owns a biplane oh, for yeah and you know so we hear them flying around right. from time to time but it's been very quiet for I was the most say we're part. back to weather balloons or something <laughs> right yes except of course you can't yes. fly those over the atlantic or the pacific really right, right? that's the problem uh, i'm not sure i'm not sure the biplane is really going high enough to get useful readings either <laughs> exactly yes we have an open cockpit right speaking of weather balloons just a name check to the prisoner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was going to say. So if we try to leave town, the weather balloons will come and get yes. us. That, that works. That would be very effective. <laughs> very, very effective in quarantining. It would. It would. We should get on that. Awesome. Okay. So last time we talked about um, anchoresses and other types of um, hermetic peoples, but primarily anchoresses. Um, yes. So in general, I'm explaining this badly. <laughs> in general, people who spent most of their lives locked away from society or, you know, out in the desert away from society, uh, doing battle on a spiritual level with demons. Sometimes they had visions. I was reading about the temptation of St. Anthony. He had all kinds of crazy, you know, beings appear to him. Um, centaurs and satyrs and... Yes, Hieronymus Bosch painted them. Apparently at one point he was out walking and a plate of silver coins just appeared in front of him, um, which was also considered a temptation. Perhaps a connection to the silver coins given to Judas. Oh, oh, yes. The 30 pieces of silver. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. 
Yes, the 30 pieces of silver. So today we're going to talk more about the mystical types of battles that they were engaged in, both in terms of anchoresses and anchorites. Um, We mentioned several specific ones at the end of last time. So we'll talk about them, and we'll talk also about some non-anchoresses. So... People? Yes. Yes. <laughs> People who are not enclosed. Yes. Yeah, so this begins sort of our foray into mysticism, which is, of course, such a giant, giant topic that we will cover only a tiny part of it. And this is, of course, Christian mysticism, of which in the Middle Ages there's also Jewish and Islamic, many, many forms of mysticism. Um, and... Of course, each branch has its own multitudes within those branches. So it's a giant topic, and we're going to take a tiny look at it. We left off last time with, um, I think specifically, Julian of Norwich, for example, who's an anchor in Norwich. Mm-hmm. And oh, we talked about two, two ladies who were involved with the creation of the Corpus Christi Festival. Yes. I believe. Well, that's where we're actually going to start, because... Julian and Richard, we might actually, Richard Rolla, who wrote The Rule of Anxes for Margaret Kirby, who was an anchoress, they're all English, and we might come back to them sort of separately, um, actually in the next episode, because, as I said, the extent of mysticism, I just want to give our listeners a sense of how giant this topic is. Bernie McGinn wrote what is kind of the definitive history of Western Christian mysticism. Um, and I'm not sure how many volumes it is at this point. It starts with the foundations of mysticism, origins to the 5th century. And then you've got, let's see, the flowering of mysticism, the varieties of vernacular mysticism, uh, the growth of mysticism. I'm getting these slightly out of order. <laughs> Um, she's for those curious. She's just reading them off of her shelf. Yes. Like she's looking around. Yes. So if there's if there's a book in the other room, we're not going to list it. Right. But. Well, uh, and then he has a whole separate um, volume on Meister Eckhart, who we will talk about at the end of this, but we'll really talk about more next time as well for various reasons. Anyway, so this is a giant. And each book here. I mean, I don't know. Can you see sort of? Oh yeah. You know, they're not. They're not thin volumes, is my point, I think. No, those are this good five, is, six hundred pages. Yep. Yep, it's into the five upper fives, you know, and then the... Okay. This is just as a sort of example of... <laughs> and, you know, this is, as I said, sort of the definitive history, but he really just runs through these things at top speed. You know, so each thing he writes about in each volume has its own who knows how many books written about it. Right. Um... So with that in mind, <laughs> we are starting with Corpus Christi, particularly because my specialty is theater. Um, and I wanted us to take a moment to recognize that theater is closely tied to Corpus Christi, um, even though plays were absolutely performed at other times of year, like Christmas and Easter, which, of course, they still are, right? We still have Christmas pageants mm-hmm. and Easter pageants. But for some reason, Corpus Christi really looms large in the imagination of theater historians. And I'm assuming it's partly because it's not a well-known modern holiday. Mm-hmm. So we're not as used to this idea of Corpus Christi pageants in the same way. Um, 
In addition to which, in certain parts of the world, which is to say Europe, but also really specifically and particularly England, they did their biggest stuff on those days. Uh, and that's probably because one of the things we discussed in our Easter episode at some point, or maybe it's in the footnotes, the idea that, first of all, you have Easter, and then 50 days later, you have Pentecost. So it's the seven Sundays, right? So, mm-hmm. And the end of that week is Corpus Christi. Okay. So... So I'm familiar with Corpus Christi as a place in Texas. Yes. And when I was in graduate school, I did read a book called... Inca Bodies and the Body of Christ that talks about the celebration of Corpus Christi in Mesoamerica during the Spanish rule. Mm-hmm. But I guess, um, A, I don't know anything about it other than people would get dressed up. So maybe we could enlighten me on that. <laughs> but also, I wasn't aware that it had died out. Oh, no. I mean, it's still definitely around. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to Italy on Corpus Christi, they make sort of flower mosaics and you're supposed to walk through them. So it's still absolutely a Catholic holiday, but it is not as um, popular in the modern era, of course, as, for example, Christmas and Easter, mm-hmm. because it's really a specifically Catholic holiday. Okay. So when Catholicism ruled the world, so to speak, which is to say... Western Europe. Um, Corpus Christi, of course, became huge. It's important to point out it was not always huge. (laughs) And it took a hard time to get there. We're going to talk about that. But for a while, it became a really important holiday. And the things that made it important also made it a holiday on which representation was really important. And consequently, plays became an important part of the festival. There's some really interesting connections to the Festival of Dionysus in Greece, right? Theater Mm -hmm. becomes part of the ceremony for Dionysus in ways that are really fascinating and still not entirely understood, honestly, when it comes to sort of the origins of theater in Greece, which in a lot of ways is the origin of theater as we think of it in the West. Um, Even though, of course, other places have theater. But a lot of the things that we recognize as theater really date there. Um in Europe. And so this sense of it being part of this festival. But one of the important reasons, quite possibly, particularly in England, is because the day was so long. If you think of Easter to Pentecost, and then after Pente- the week after Pentecost, Corpus Christi is pretty close to what is the longest day of the year, which is sort of yeah. around June 21st or something. Um, and obviously it can travel, because as we know, these things are not fixed. Which right. is say they are, but it, it all depends. Relatively fixed. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Easter does wander around the calendar a little bit. So in that sense, um, we do have, you know, a little bit of a wandering of Corpus Christi, but it is a holiday on which you have a lot of daylight. So if you have a really long player festival, it's a great holiday. That being said, all right, I do want to talk about sort of the origins of Corpus Christi, which of course means the body of Christ, right? Corpus is body. Christi is of Christ, right? It's genitive. And so we have a feast that is in honor of the sacrament, right? So the Eucharistic wafer, we talked about transubstantiation. Um, This is a feast in honor of that. And there was, it was not a feast for most of sort of half the Middle Ages, basically, a little over half. And Pope Urban IV institutes it in 1264. 
And this is because a lot of reasons, but one of them, one of the main ones, um, is that in 1215, at the Fourth Lateran Council, transubstantiation was deemed absolutely official, right? So it is now law for the Catholic Church that during Mass, the priest absolutely does transfer the bread and the wine into the literal body and blood of Christ. It's so weird that that's so relatively recent in Catholic history. Yes. And obviously, people who don't believe that never went away. Right. So you have all of these what are called proto-Protestant heresies, right? Because, of course, they were considered heresies by the Catholic Church, and they are proto-Protestant in the sense that none of them quite managed to break away until Luther, right? He manages to form his own religion. It is recognized ultimately as separate and that is sort of the beginning of Protestantism. But proto-Protestantism, right? There are tons and tons of groups, and they become known usually by the names of sort of people who inspire them, so like Wycliffeites. And a lot of these groups hold various beliefs that we would consider Protestant eventually, right? But they have, because they happen sort of before Luther, they're called proto-Protestant. Uh, and transubstantiation is one of the big ones. The idea that this might not be literal. Um, and so it's one of the things that people tend to be tested on, right? When you're being tested for heresy, do you believe in literal transubstantiation? Yeah, so 1215 happens, Fourth Lateran. you got to convince people. Not everyone is buying mm-hmm. it. <laughs> sure. And as I said, right, these heresies certainly perpetuate and they exist. So one of the things that has been going on um, is that there is a movement long-standing move, um, but sort of increasing, of women who are devoted to the body of Christ. And this movement essentially gets seen as a great propaganda tool. And actually, I want to quote Diane Elliott from Proving Woman. And she says, quote, The active sponsorship of certain holy women associated with the Begin movement by clerics was an extension of the anti-heretical campaign associated with Lateran Four. In the writings of these men, female piety comes to exemplify devotion to the sacraments. Okay, so women are specifically connected to the sacrament and the body of Christ. This is for two reasons we kind of mentioned, I'm pretty sure, in the Easter episode. Um, One of them is that the general sort of dichotomy of body and soul, women, of course, are tied to the body and the flesh, and men are the soul or the mind. Right? Oh, yeah, no, we talked about that last time, <laughs> yeah. too. Okay. Um, and then the second, I th- we also talked about this, um, is because Jesus received his physical body for the Virgin Mary. So there's this really interesting way in which his flesh is seen as female, although, of course, his soul from his father, right, is um, male. And, of course, he is, you know, both mortal and immortal, God, right. divine. But the mortal part is sort of seen as feminine in this weird, paradoxical way. Um, so women have this connection, quite literally, to the actual body of Christ, because that was sort of the body, the flesh of the virgin. Women are associated with the flesh. And so they're sort of growing devotion. Women, a lot of women see a great sort of way for them to gain authority, Right, okay. that they can sort of paradoxically take this supposedly secondary devotion to the body, right? Instead of sort of to the soul, to the mind, to God the Father, um, 
they can take what is supposedly a lesser form of devotion and sort of turn it into this really important connection to Christ. Because transubstantiation sort of as that takes hold, of course, makes the literal body and the flesh incredibly, incredibly important. It is no longer secondary to the sort of spiritual aspects of Christ, uh, to the connection to God the Father. It's absolutely on an equal footing. And so women take this moment, they sort of seize it, right? And use it to make their devotion integral to the conversation. And at the same time, clerics see them as really useful propaganda. So this is what Elliot is sort of talking about, that in the move after Lateran IV to try and stomp out all of these proto-Protestant heresies that don't believe in transubstantiation, women who have this sort of profound devotion are seen as really useful, right? Um, And that's particularly because women frequently, they may not be as well-educated, they may be laywomen, right? There's a much broader range of women who have this devotion, Right. The the Beguines you mentioned, um, we talked about them very briefly last time, that they're a lay right. order of women who, but they're not an order, like nuns without a, without a, without a nunnery. Exactly. They're absolutely a non-order. This is incredibly important. Beguines are lay women who frequently live in communities. They could be on their own, but they frequently live in communities. They behave in many ways as, as nuns, right? So, They live sort of according to chastity, um, doing good works in the world, according to spiritual devotion, right, and prayer. But they're absolutely not only not official orders, right? They have no official order. They have no official rule. They are independent and frequently independent in ways that made people very nervous, right? (laughs) So they're not being overseen, Right. By any sort of male authority, (laughs) any male authority. Right. So not just they're not being overseen by a bishop. They're not being overseen by a monk, but no husbands. Yeah. No sons, no fathers. So they're fantastic. I mean, they must have somebody who conducts mass for them. Ooh, not necessarily. Oh, Um, they could go to church, of course. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Which many of them would frequently. Right. Um, And you there might be a priest who likes them and supports them, but they aren't necessarily in a community the way nuns would be with a chapel. Oh, okay. Right? If they live together, it might be sort of in a house, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Which, of course, is terrifying, right? A group of independent women living together. Oh, my God. Right. With no, no rule, <laughs> no male oversight. Horrifying. Yeah. So... Spring break, 12, 14. Woo! Yes, Exactly. Right. So this is really fantastic. And of course, one of the reasons this grows up is because of the many things we've talked about already. One of the big ones is monastic rules. We went off on this a couple times. Mm-hmm. And the extent to which, as I said, right, you frequently had to be rich to buy your way into a nunnery. Also, something we didn't talk as much about yet is that a lot of established orders tried to tamp down on the number of nuns they had. Right. Because men didn't want all these women around. They didn't want to be overseeing women. So women who were themselves rich and wealthy could found a convent and take in women. And usually, you know, they could sort of force the issue and say, I want to form a convent and someone's going to let them. But it was became increasingly difficult to found new convents. 
And there was a real move to try and sort of tamp down the number of women joining orders. This idea was sort of distracting the men from their real business. All the things we can imagine. Which meant you have all of these women who aren't necessarily rich enough or wealthy enough to found their own convent or to get into an existing one. But they have enough money to live on their own, be kind of independent. They want to take orders, but they're not allowed to. Mm -hmm. So what do they do? They basically live as though they had, but without having actually done it. Okay. Because they're not allowed to. Right? And so that became one of the big things about Beguines, where they sort of said, well, look, I mean, you, you aren't letting us take orders. So, and take orders, we mean with a big O. Right. Per- a perpetual vow type of... Yes, exactly. So how can you complain that we, we want to, you won't let us, we are living that life mm-hmm. independently. And it is worth noting, there's a huge rise in this sort of in the 1200s, particularly in the low countries. Low countries kind of meaning Dutch speaking. Also some French speaking, of course, thinking of like Belgium, but um, Holland, right? These, these areas that we now sort of consider the low countries. And eventually, there about a couple hundred years goes by. Um, by the time we hit sort of the end of um, the 14th century, a lot of these women have been absorbed into orders. So finally, what does happen it takes a while, right? It takes a couple hundred years. But what does finally happen is that a lot of them are forced into traditional orders, even sometimes when they don't want to, right? But at this point, it's just been decided that it's too much trouble to have these independent women out there. A couple hundred years have gone by. They aren't really needed anymore for propaganda. Transubstantiation is pretty well settled. And to the extent that it's not, and there are still proto-Protestant heresies, the women have sort of done their job, it's decided. And so a lot of them are just funneled into um, official orders and forced to take official orders. But before that, we have all of these sort of communities of independent women, which are sort of fascinating. Um, and the Low Countries is this really important place for these women. And so Julianne of Montcornion, who is from Liège. Liège, famous for waffles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and really a center point for begins and for medieval mysticism for women. Um, Liège is one of the big, big, big sort of centers. And Juliana starts having visions before Fourth Lateran. She's sort of early 20s when Fourth Lateran shows up. And so she's 1192 to 1258. So Fourth Lateran, of course, right? 1215. Um, She's already been having visions. She Mm -hmm. doesn't know what they mean. She sees the full moon. She has a lot of visions, but the big one is uh, the full moon with a spot in it. (laughs) Um, Sometimes it's described as like a piece missing. (laughs) Like a pizza with a piece of Okay. But it seems to be more more accurate to say the sort of the moon with a dark spot. Okay. So she doesn't know what it means. Fourth ladder happens. Transubstantiation um, is sort of finalized. And she starts to share these visions. And eventually she is told in one of the visions, by Christ, of course, um, that what it means is that there is a feast missing from the calendar. Okay. Sure. Right? So the moon, of course, represents like the calendar right? The round, the year. And the feast that's missing is the feast of the sacrament, which of course also is represented by the moon, Mm -hmm. right? The perfect whole moon, full moon, is of course the sacramental wafer, right? So to restore it to its perfect luster, to get rid of this dark spot, she needs to institute a feast. That's a heck of a vision. So she starts telling people this. That's great. That's (laughs) It's fantastic. That's great. That's very symbolic. Yes. 
so she's phenomenal. One of the first people she tells, she tells some um, people around her, she's actually a canonist. Mm-hmm. So she is an official orders, in fact. And she's elected prioress. She's part of a double canonry, so men and women. She's actually elected prioress. Um, but she's chased out twice. <laughs> um, she's clearly, I mean, sort of feisty and yeah. smart and all of these things. And she's chased out twice by people who don't like her. Um, one time she's chased completely out of the Diocese of Liege. Wow. Yeah. So she's this really interesting woman. So she's not actually a Beguine, but she's sort of forced occasionally to live like one because she gets chased out of her official order. You know, she doesn't sort of literally get taken out of the order, but she does get physically yeah. pushed out. You know, she has to leave. So she does end up sort of living as a Beguine for a while. And one of the other people that she tells very early on, besides sort of some of the people around her who are canons... Um, is Eve of St. Martin, San Martin, um, who we mentioned last time, who was an anchoress. And Juliana sort of tells her about this and about the feast. And Juliana ends up writing the, an actual office for the feast, which is astonishingly important, because this is, we're talking about an official liturgical mm-hmm. office, which obviously is the sort of thing that could only be said and or written by men, priests specifically, right? A woman can't be a priest, so she can't, really write or perform an office. Um, But she is divinely inspired to write it. And she dictates it to this canon. And he sort of takes it down, and then she looks it over and kind of edits it. Um, So she creates it. And eventually, it sort of catches on. The Archdeacon of Liege and some other people sort of around her like it. And they institute it and start using it. Um, It's celebrated at St. Martin. And we know a lot of this because of Juliana's Vita, her life, right? This is with a capital L or a capital V. Yeah, the, the official saint bio. Yes. Uh, and we're pretty sure hers was actually written by Eve, which is fantastic. Yes. It means she has a female biographer, which is wonderful. Um, it also means that whenever something happens at St. Martin, the biographer was there to see it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, which isn't always true of biographers, right? But anyway, so there's this wonderful sort of connection. And uh, Juliana dies in 1258. It's not yet an official feast. But the former Archdeacon of Liege becomes Pope. This is Urban IV. And Eve writes him and says, hey, (laughs) you know, this feast that we all really loved, Corpus Christi, you should institute this. And he agrees Mm-hmm. presumably because of aforesaid propaganda reasons. This is 1264, and even though 1215 is a little bit ago now, they're still fighting this fight, absolutely, for transubstantiation. So he has Thomas Aquinas write the office, and he institutes it as a feast. And he sends Eve a letter saying that he's done so, which is how we know that she definitely died after it was done. So Juliana didn't get to see it made an official part of the Roman calendar, but um, Eve does get to see that. And the fantastic thing about this, yeah, is that this is one of the first feasts, the first, really, um, that is part of the Roman calendar by papal decree, which is unusual. And we have this added really phenomenal aspect that a woman thought it up, founded it, wrote the initial office for it that was used at least a few times in celebration, and that then essentially her best friend, the anchoress, 
is the one who made sure, first of all, that the feast was really instituted by sort of pestering the former archdeacon, right? Now Pope until he did it. And then, of course, by writing Juliana's saint's bio. Yeah. Right? To try and make sure that her importance in its founding remained. Right? So it's a really sort of female-centric holiday in ways that might not be apparent um, from the fact that, you know, the Feast of Corpus Christi, the body of Christ... It may seem male-centric, but in fact, it's really sort of based on a female devotion. And that, to me, is a sort of really phenomenal element of why um, one of the things that sort of happens is over the next sort of couple hundred years, as this type of lay mm-hmm. devotion is kind of suppressed in women, but also in the laity in general. Laity meaning not religious clerics or priests or monks or etc. Um that one of the things that happens is the rise of theater. <laughs> because Corpus Christi, if you think about it, it's very much about representation, right? Body and bread, wine and blood, right? The bread and the wine represent these things, become these things, don't seem to be these things, right? There's something very sort of central to this holiday about representation, um, as there is with theater. So the idea that theater becomes important to this holiday really does make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And one of the big myths, and this is a myth, but nonetheless, one of the big myths about the end of the Middle Ages is that women weren't really involved. Completely untrue. And we'll probably talk about Hildegard, who wrote the first sort of musical drama that we've got. Um, and of course, Hrotsvit's the first named playwright of Western Europe after the fall of Rome. But anyway... Um, this idea that women somehow weren't involved in theater, and yet, right, the foundation of this holiday that has that becomes so important to theater and to festivals of theater um, mm-hmm. is founded by women, and I think that has a lot to do with also this element of representation and the ways women saw themselves in the body of Christ, which may seem unusual to a modern sort of standpoint, but shouldn't. And we'll talk more about that. I pause for thoughts or comments. <laughs> yes. oh man it strikes me so when we talk about women being involved in the theater was the would there have been women in these plays as well as sort of behind the scenes or like i know that there was a ban on women on the stage sort of during the renaissance yeah um well this is only specifically for england uh, where professional women, it's not so much they weren't allowed on the stage, but they couldn't be part of the guild of actors, essentially. Oh, okay. Which is sort of the same thing. Uh, but women did appear on the stage, but they were women who were either, uh, Mal Cutpurse shows up, um, that's a whole other thing, but we can put some stuff in the footnotes, she's fantastic, but uh, because there's a play about her, <laughs> um, the Roaring Girl, and so she shows up and sort of does a night of monologues or whatever, if you think of, like, Charlie Sheen doing his thing or something. <laughs> Basically, okay. right? Um, and women from other countries. So, like, a French troop would come in and, you know, an Italian troop. And, of course, there were women who were part of those troops because in those countries, women were absolutely part of those troops. And they'd perform on the stage, mm-hmm. you know. But, yeah, English women weren't part of the professional English troops in the Renaissance. Okay. But that's such a specific 
thing to say, right? Court women performed absolutely, right? Women performed at court all over the place, including in England. You know what? That's that's mentioned in uh, Neil Stevenson's Broke Cycle. They have the women on the stage, I think, are mostly the mistresses of the king or something like that. Right. I mean, in practice, um. <laughs> that, that is not necessarily true. Um, <laughs> well, but, you novel. Know. But yeah, right. yeah, they talk, they talk a little bit about that. Yeah. But, you know, women at court. Yes. So they're, they're women at court. They're women hanging around at court. Um, so, yeah, they're noble women, the handmaidens of the queen or mm-hmm. whoever. I mean, um, but yeah, they're, they're on stage. Absolutely. So when we talk about these women sort of presenting I don't a representation of something on stage, um, and I know that we talked a little bit about women struggling as anchoresses to sort of make themselves as good as men. Yes. I think I think the, the thought I'm groping toward here is something like, were women allowed to present themselves as male or as you know, in some way, transcending their female selves on stage? Ooh, so this is really interesting. We're going to have to have a whole episode <laughs> about theater, of course, at least one. And this is probably one of the things we'll talk about. But um, first of all, there is cross-gender casting, obviously, because men do frequently play women. Right. Women also sometimes play women. Now, there's a different question here. Do women ever play men? And on stage, (laughs) it's not clear that that happens. But there are definitely stories of women, of course, dressing as men. We're going to talk about Joan of Arc next time. And she's a great example. Uh, So women performing in roles that aren't seen as suitable for women, yes, 100%. On stage, it becomes a little more interesting. You tend to have... um, more elements like Hildegard's musical that mm-hmm. I mentioned. It's the Ordo Virtunum, the Order of the Virtues. Um, and an Ordo was a genre of medieval play based on sort of originally things like the Order of the Prophets was one of the common ones. And sort of sure. all the prophets would come out and they'd all give you a little spiel. Right? And so Hildegard takes a few male-centric genres and transforms them into this musical that she wrote. She composed music. It's freaking brilliant. I don't know if we can link to the actual stuff if there's a YouTube video, but we can certainly link to some of the recordings that are out there that you can, like, pay for on iTunes or something. And essentially, she wrote this for her nuns to perform. Um, And they perform the virtues. And also, Anima is the central character. She's the every person character, right? We think of every man as being this very common character, but she's every person, right? But Anima means soul, yeah. She's the soul. Yes. Yeah. And you remember we just talked about how the soul is masculine and the body is feminine. Yeah. And the soul wants to escape the body and be with God. Yes. Well, in Hildegard's take, the soul is female. Female role. All of the virtues are female. Mm-hmm. Now, her excuse for this is that, um, for those who know their languages, uh, the language tells us... <laughs> That the gender of all of these words is female, right? So the grammatical gender of anima is female. The grammatical gender of all of the virtues is female. So grammatically, their gender is female. And she basically takes this as an excuse to make all of the characters female in practice. 
So whereas the soul, even though grammatically the gender of the term anima is female, the soul, as I said, is nonetheless usually seen as male, right? And the flesh is female. But in Hildegard, she's like, well, hey, I mean, grammatically, this is female, so it might as well be female. But of course, then in practice, what that means is that the female soul is talking about needing to escape the body and join God. But we never actually see God. We only see the virtues. She wants to join the virtues, who hmm. clearly sort of stand for heaven and all that is good and all of these things, right? So we have this female soul wanting to join this female sort of heavenly choir. What's holding her back? Well, Hildegard doesn't say specifically that the body is male, but temptation, which is usually seen as the flesh, right? The temptations of the flesh is absolutely 100% male. And he shows up as the devil and he talks anima into going away, right? And of course, eventually she'll return and be reunited with the virtues, but she leaves, right? And the devil is the only character in the entire musical that doesn't sing. Oh, he yells. Interesting. Because he has, he has mm-hmm. no music. Um, music is divine, right? The music of the spheres. Music is divine. So if music is divine, then sort of by definition, the devil must have no music. <laughs> um, yeah, so he just yells. This is going to make a lot of Swedish death metal bands very unhappy. <laughs> well, but there's this fantastic, fantastic sense, right, of the female soul being trapped by sort of men, by male temptation, of course, yeah. a very male devil, uh, who is probably, by the way, played by Hildegard's sort of um, scribe and secretary and <laughs> right-hand man. And the female soul wants to escape all that, right, and join the female choir. So it's this incredibly female-centric musical. But also, the theology does flip everything a little bit gender-wise on its head, right? She absolutely does kind of re-envision the traditional dichotomies and the traditional sort of gendered interpretations in ways that are really phenomenal. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So that's how she gets away with it. Yeah. So um, I do want to say that speaking of this, we'll probably talk more about performance, obviously, a lot. But one of the fun things also about Hildegard um, is that she absolutely views performance. Uh, And by the way, Hildegard's in the 1100s. We've got, you know, this is sort of very early. This is much earlier than all the rest of this. So we have Hrotsvit. She's our first named playwright of the Middle Ages. So really of Western Europe since the fall of Rome. Um, And she's sort of 935 to 1002. um, And she's German-speaking. Hildegard is also German-speaking. Germany is absolutely a phenomenal place for women, Mm. um, even as you move up through vernacular theater. So Hrotsvit and Hildegard are both writing in Latin, right? Um, But once, even once you get up to sort of the vernacular German-speaking theater, um, you do have, Germany especially, you have tons of women on stage. Okay. Like, women frequently play the women, and men play the men. Um, in ways that in Italy and France, and by that I mean Italian-speaking mm-hmm. areas, French-speaking areas, um, can be a little more fluid. Where you might have women, you might have men playing women, it's a little more open. Um, but women are a real sort of strong force in Germany. A lot of powerful women in all sorts of ways. So um, Hildegard lives to be like 80. <laughs> she's phenomenal. Uh, but she's sort of 1098 to 1179. She's amazing. We'll definitely talk about her more. But these women are all 
really an official established part of the order. I mean, they have power. They are well-born. They are rich. Right? Hildegard founds her own convent twice. Um, Hrotsvit joins Gandersheim, which is its own sort of independent principality. So they, they're really sort of interesting, but they're also in a very different place from all the Beguines we're talking about, um, who don't have that level of sort of prestige and wealth, but want to do something anyway, right? Um, and they're in this area where it's tough for women. As I said, the low countries, right? These sort of, uh, where there are definitely men who are supportive, but there's at the same time this sort of official move to try and tamp down on the number of nuns. And so what are they going to do? Well, they find this sort of way in. And that way in is this devotion to the body of Christ. And whereas Hildegard comes sort of straight out and says, yeah, the soul can be female. Absolutely. These women take a slightly different tack where they say, okay, if we say the flesh is female, and that's supposed to be bad. Yeah. But when it comes to Christ, his flesh is also female. And that's great. Yeah. Because, you know, he's pure. And his flesh comes from the virgin. And they're, they're all female. This is all female. So we are going to identify with that side of the flesh, the part of it that is the body of Christ, the part of it that is connected to the Virgin Mary. And we're going to demonstrate how incredibly important this is. And only we as women have this special mm -hmm. connection because we yeah. are body and we are flesh. So what is usually seen as bad will now be good. Right. So they're doing they have a sort of similar project in some ways, mm -hmm. but they're doing this very differently. Right. Um, and taking this very physical, very physical tack. They're not quite. They're not quite deconstructing the the idea, but they're definitely sort of subverting the typical. Well, we'll say the typical male construction of, you know, female yes. bad, male divine. Yeah, um, and so what we have is so this is known as affective piety. This is with an A, affective, right? It's very much about the sort of emotional devotion to Jesus specifically, right? So this is not God the Father, and definitely not the Holy Ghost, right? So to Jesus, particularly the moments of his life where he is sort of the most mortal, which is really his birth and his death, right? So the infancy and the passion. Um, in addition to that, Mary's sorrow, right? Mm -hmm. The sorrow of the grieving mother, which we've talked about a lot, also absolutely takes a role. Right? Because women, they, of course, they identify the birth of a kid, right? The sorrow of a mother who's lost a kid, the death of a kid, you know, these are things that they absolutely identify with. And so effective piety becomes this really sort of important place for women to make their mark. And as I said, for a while, the propaganda tool is very useful because um, their devotion to the Eucharist as the body of Christ helps convince other people, particularly lay people, um, who might otherwise be a little bit sort of uncertain. Um, and the more lay people believe in something, then, you know, frequently the higher-ups will sort of fall in line as well, because whatever. You know, unless you're really opposed, you're not necessarily going to care. You'll just do what your congregation wants, right? So there's sort of both sides, right? You have clerics who are promoting them as propaganda, but you also have the women themselves sort of spreading the word as propaganda. And... One of my favorite quotes, <laughs> we brought up Joan of Arc already, so I'll just say um, a lot of men didn't like this. And as I said, it's sort of there's a f 
sort of 100 years, 150 years, where it really flowers. Um, and then sort of by the end of the 1300s into the 1400s, there's, again, the movement to sort of stomp this out and move all these women into actual nunneries and, you know, get them out of there. Um, but one of the people who becomes famous for sort of trying to end <laughs> um, effective piety is Jean Gerson, mm-hmm. who's 1363 to 1429. Um, and when St. Bridget of Sweden is up for canonization. He tries his hardest to sort of stomp it out. And she's known as Brigida, usually, by the way. Um, St. Brigida, right? Um, so she has visions, of course, of Christ's passion. And they're recorded as her revelations. Um, and she goes to Rome to ask to found her own order. So she does get to, right? So she's actually, she has wealth and power, obviously. Um, so she is not looking to be just a beguine. <laughs> she wants an order. And she founds them, the Brigitines. Um so she gets her order. And then she gets canonized after her death. But Jean Gerson, um, at the beginning of his career, so this is a quote from a book by Barbara Newman, who of course was my chair, and it's super amazing. But this is God and the Goddesses. This is such a great quote. <laughs> uh, so uh, she says, uh, Brigida, quote, was, quote, Brigida was also canonized after her death, despite the fact that the great French theologian Jean Gerson, who was at the beginning of his career, attempted to scuttle her canonization. While he did not succeed, um, well, I think I'm actually quoting my own work here. That's weird. Uh, (laughs) Oh, no. While he did not succeed, Barbara Newman notes that his later work made him, this is the Barbara Newman quote. All right. Barbara Newman notes that his later work made him, Jean Gerson, quote, the first in a long train of clerics, including many modern scholars, to find such piety embarrassing, scandalous, or even blasphemous. Hmm. End quote. So this is really important, right? It starts with people like Gerson. It doesn't start with Gerson, but um, that's not fair at all. But he, he definitely is one of the big names in tamping this out. And it continues all the way through the modern day, where you have tons of men. Um, Carolyn Bynum wrote Holy Feast, Holy Fast, uh-oh, in, let's say, the early 80s somewhere. And um, it was a really sort of watershed moment for women's studies in the medieval period. Even before that, you'd had some female scholars come up with some really incredible stuff. Female scholars discovering things written by women, um, like the Book of Marjorie Kemp, or like Marguerite Perret's works. We'll talk more about Perret probably next time. Um, And a lot of these women sort of weren't taken seriously not necessarily the scholars, although that is also true, but also the women they were discovering. Um, Marjorie Kemp particularly, (laughs) um, a lot of men read her book in sort of, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, and had some nasty things to say about her and her piety, her effective piety. Um, She's frequently hysterical. She weeps constantly, like she sees a newborn baby you know, a male baby, and she'll just start weeping uncontrollably because it reminds her of the Christ child and, of course, you know, his terrible death and so on. Okay. It's a little extra, as we would say nowadays, but... (laughs) She is absolutely a thousand times, a thousand times a thousand extra. But there's also the point, right, she's really leaning into this. Mm -hmm. You know, women are hysterical, women are emotional, fine. Then women have this connection like nobody else. Right. Sure. If that's what you're going to say about women, 
But at the same time, everyone is supposed to be moved by Christ and moved by the death of Christ, moved by the sacrament. Well, nobody can be emotionally invested in this stuff like a hysterical woman. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, it strikes me as like when you retell the story of Passover, right? You're supposed to retell it as though you were the one who went forth from Egypt. And it seems like there's something to be said for not just yeah. intellectually being able to connect to the idea of a sacrifice, but to be able to emotionally relate to the idea of, you know, like losing a son or giving up your son to the betterment of the world oh, or something. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. I mean, and a lot of these women have visions not only of Christ, right, on the cross and, of course, afterwards, right, and visions of Mary and the Magdalene mourning him and um, visions of Mary when Jesus is a baby, They right? Their visions are usually incredibly interactive. They talk to Christ. They nurse him as a baby. Um, maybe they don't want to give him back to Mary because <laughs> they're so enthralled. Um, they're just these incredible, incredibly involved moments. But of course, effective piety is in many ways the obvious, obvious sort of conclusion to men, priests, right? Saying, who are you not to be moved by what Christ did for you? Right? How can you not care? How can you come to services and listen to this and not be moved by what he did? Well, then you get this, right? Um, and yet then, right, they're embarrassing. So you get the opposite side, right? Men saying, oh, right, these embarrassing women being so hysterical and emotional about all this. And that's something that then lasts for hundreds, I mean, hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, Right? Since, you know, even before Gerson yeah. in the 1400s, all the way to now, right? Um, and there's some really famous um, sort of commentaries. One of the good guys, very literally, <laughs> is uh, Peter Dranka, who wrote a whole book about women um, in the 70s, women's writing. And he absolutely sort of says, like, all these women did this fantastic stuff, blah, blah, blah. And then there were some other male scholars who did not agree. And some of them in the ensuing decades have come around, mm -hmm. you know, and been like, okay, yeah, maybe he's right. Um, but every now and then, you know, there are a couple essays Junkie wrote here there where he'd sort of be like, this person <laughs> in talking about this woman like she didn't do all this stuff clearly hasn't read my article on whatever. <laughs> now, probably the person had, but just ignored it, basically. Um, but there is a really sort of interesting way in which it also is a sort of reminder of the phrase, was this, I don't know, was this Virginia Woolf or someone? Uh, for most of history, Anonymous was a woman. Oh, I haven't heard that one before. Right? Okay. Yeah. So this idea that, which is true, right? Mm -hmm. It's absolutely true. If Hrotsvit, if we didn't have her name, if we didn't know that she was this woman from Gandersheim, if we didn't know that that's who she was and where she came from, of course we'd assume that those were all written by men. Right. We'd be like, women weren't taught to write or educated like that, or they didn't have the time. Yes. Right. And I'm actually looking forward to us doing some more stuff on women as makers. I don't know, can oh, you wow. see how thick this book is? Yes. Um, reassessing the roles of women as makers of medieval art and architecture. Um, and of course, as theater makers, right? And composers and all of this stuff that women did or that women paid for, that women produced, women as patrons. Um women absolutely illuminated manuscripts, right? Women did all of this stuff. There's even, there's a case of 
this sort of German director um, who was he a, he a blacksmith or something? Um, and he made sets also and stuff like this. And he was a director. And then when he died, his wife sort of took over. But they worked together while he was alive, you know. So this sense of how much women did, but how long they've been ignored. And the idea that women weren't on stage is another part of that. Yes. Because <laughs> um, it's so ridiculous because obviously they were. But again, this sense, yeah, somehow that women weren't doing things. So, um, you know, women weren't doing things. Women were hysterical. All of these myths that exist. And all the way down to things, right, the importance of Corpus Christi, but the fact that most people don't know it was founded by women. And by most people, of course, I don't mean medievalists, but (laughs) um, a lot of theater historians don't know it. You'll find it in theater history books. You'll frequently find the wrong date because it takes a while Mm -hmm. to get off the ground. It's why you need all this propaganda. So it really starts in the Low Countries. It spreads. England is connected to the Low Countries by trade. England is constantly trading across the channel with the Low Countries. Um, This is probably one of the reasons why... Although it takes a while for England to really get on board with Corpus Christi, it might very well be one of the reasons why, once they do, they start doing all these plays. Because they really kind of embrace it. So there is this really important history to that, and this sort of Mm female-centric history that tends to get written out. Um, Either because people sort of get the date wrong, just because of sort of basing it on when England sort of really took it over as a holiday, or just because... You know, people haven't looked back that far or they think it doesn't matter. But it's a reminder, right? And the fun thing is that Jean Gerson, this isn't fun exactly, but um, at the end of his career, right, so he starts at the beginning of his career by seeing effective piety, um, as Barbara Newman says, right, embarrassing, <laughs> scandalous, even blasphemous, <laughs> right? He tries to scuttle Birgitta's canonization. Doesn't work. So he sort of becomes increasingly hostile I think those are Barbara Newman's words, increasingly hostile, to women like this, to effective piety in general. Um, And eventually, this is a quote from Barbara Newman, he launches a full-scale polemic against female visionaries, claiming that they mistake mental illness for divine revelation. Wow. End quote. Which I love. Hysterical. Right. That is the extreme version of men saying that women are crazy. Yeah. Is a guy, yes, saying very, very literally... (laughs) Literally, this is a mental illness. They think they're seeing divine revelation and that they are mentally ill. Yeah. So at the end of his career, uh, it turned out he'd done great work uh, because he dies just before Joan of Arc does. But um, he actually tries, he writes a thing in defense of her. He writes a treatise in defense of her. Obviously, it doesn't work. (laughs) She is, in fact, executed. But it's in some ways a sign of how well he did his job. Right? He wanted to get rid of women like this. One finally came along he believed in. <laughs> At least, you know, he was politically sympathetic and therefore he believed in her. It's like some of my best friends are women. Yes. And what happens, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. I mean, he really did his work and she gets executed. But it is a really important reminder in some ways of what women were up against. And so the ways in which they use this, right? Anchoresses. You think, why would any woman do that? Well, look at what they're up against, right? You do, do what you can, and they become well-known. They become sought out for advice. One of the things that I think we talked about was that anchoresses, when they get bricked up, um, it's they often have the office of the dead said for them. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, but they're also sort of paradoxically seen as the brides of Christ. 
And this is something, this is a huge part of effective piety. So all of these women, you don't have to be a widow. You don't have to be a virgin. You can be married. You can be anything. And you can absolutely see yourself as the bride of Christ. And this is based on the Song of Songs. Okay. That's, originally. Um, part, yes. It's Shir HaShirim in Hebrew. It's one of the... Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it opens with, let's see. Um, so let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Oh, yeah. Right. My beloved is mine and I am his. Okay, so, so it's yeah. a, you know, it's an erotic poem. Yes. And then how right they are to adore you. Dark am I. I'm, this is sort of whatever translation that's just random. This isn't a special medieval translation at all. This is sort of the more literal, you know, new whatever translation. Um, you know, if I were really doing this, I'd do the King James, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, yes, so dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, right? So do not stare at me because I am dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. All right. So the dark, right, there's a lot of imagery here. But the bride, right, she's the bride or the sort of the lover. Um, okay. She's seen as the church, sort of. Um, and the bridegroom she's waiting for, the lover she's waiting for is Christ, right? And there's this sense of her as potentially seen as inferior, right? Um, but the lover will come to her because even though she's sort of seen potentially as inferior, she has made herself worthy, right? Um this is very similar to the way that, that the book is interpreted in, like, between God and nation of... Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Not the nation yeah. state, but, like, the, the people. Right. The people, yes. <laughs> Jews. Um, yeah. You know. But it's also, it's absolutely an erotic poem. Yes. In the middle of the oh, Bible. Yeah. Right? Um, and this is... 100% the way a lot of these female visionaries in the Middle Ages see Christ. Right? Very erotic imagery. Okay. I was going to ask, when you said devotion to the body of Christ, did they... they yes. You don't just mean the Eucharist. Like, you mean they, they envision themselves sort of physically... Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so... You know, Christ is a lover, right? He's sort of the perfect lover. Um, and of course, in the Middle Ages, this is something else we'll talk about when we get to other, completely other mm-hmm. things like chivalry. <laughs> but, you know, he can absolutely be seen as, right, the chivalrous knight. I mean, there are all sure. sorts of variations on this. But it's just a reminder, right, the Song of Songs goes way back. It's something that was sanctioned by interpretation <laughs> at the time, right? By yes. actual <laughs> male interpretation. I remember, okay, so when I was like 13 and I went to a Jewish camp, Song of Songs was the, the thing that we looked at all summer as sort of our the thing that justified us being um, Jewish and wow. at camp because it was really like an arts program. But I, um, I remember thinking like they couldn't have chosen a better piece for a bunch of like... 12, 13 year olds to be looking at. (laughs) But also I was like, I'm not totally sure I buy this interpretation that this is about God. Right. Well, that's of course the fun of it, because in Judaism it's sort of harder. Mm -hmm. But in Christianity it makes perfect sense, because one of the Trinity is a mortal guy. 
you know? And the eroticism of it, it's really interesting because, of course, men in the Middle Ages are also writing about the clerics are writing about this, right? Um, and so they will see, like, their soul is the bride and Christ is the bridegroom, um, for example. Hmm. Things like that, right? Um, but they will, you know, that is still that imagery. Um, so you get some really interesting sort of definitely homoerotic imagery around it as well when men are writing about it. But for the women, obviously there's this phenomenally erotic poetry. Um, we're going to talk more about, I think, love and hell next time. So we're going to talk more about the erotic poetry. But Hadavij has some phenomenal, she's a begin. she writes some amazing erotic poetry that is about Christ as love. But mm-hmm. also, obviously, right, sort of along the lines of Song of Songs, and yet you know, you can definitely look at any of it if you didn't tell someone what it was. It's not like you would right. know, right? <laughs> Song of Songs is in the Bible, so that's sort of... That's the only clue, you know, really. Right, basically. Um, I do here want to actually give us our Shakespeare diversion, okay. by the way. Because, um, so this line, right, where... You know, dark am I, yet lovely daughters of Jerusalem do not stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. I'm skipping some lines and paraphrasing there, but... Um, in Merchant of Venice, the opening line for Morocco, when he comes to woo Portia. Uh, Mislike me not for my complexion, the shadowed livery of the burnished sun, to whom I am a neighbor and near-bred. Um, so he's, right, he's very clearly supposed to be black. Um... And Portia's incredibly racist, and when he leaves, she says, let all of his complexion choose me so. But there's a fe- this phenomenal moment that his opening lines are the same, essentially, they're clearly supposed to evoke the lines of the bride in the Song of Songs. And I love that moment, because it's a reminder of the sort of <laughs> incredible number of layers that Shakespeare puts into everything, Right. But also that Morocco here, if we're supposed to compare him to the bride, right, then obviously in this moment when Portia, when we start to realize how racist Portia is, she is obviously not worthy, Mm -hmm. right? Because she is not the sort of, she is not like the bridegroom. (laughs) She is like the people staring or the people who dislike the bride and the song of songs because she is dark, right? Yeah. And there's a really sort of brilliant commentary there on, on racism. Yeah. Um, in the middle of this play that we've mentioned it before, because it's got all of the isms, as I said. Um, but it's just such a phenomenal moment. But it's also a reminder of how important this poem really is um, as sort of erotic imagery, um, but also really as racial imagery and the ways it sort of continues to, to manifest itself. Um, so when we're talking about rep- representation, right? There's this great moment in Merchant of Venice. Um, But for the Middle Ages, the sense really is, um, yeah, a lot of erotic sort of imagery, frequently for effective piety. This can mean a very sort of physical union with Christ. Obviously, you cannot have sex with Christ, but you can come really close. (laughs) So some of my favorite... um, moments that are connected to this are things like uh, when taking communion. So Juliana, to go back to her, of course, founding of the whole Feast of Corpus Christi, in her life, her vita, right, her saint's bio, there's a discussion Mm. of um, 
how she views sort of the sweetness of the Eucharist, right? And this is taken, in a sense, yeah. very literally, right? How just incredibly sweet and extraordinary the Eucharist is, a, is as a food, right? And of course, you, you swallow it, right? There's a definite, you know, um, <laughs> and there's women who sort of describe it as like honey yes. dripping down their throats or, you know, so... You're ingesting him. I mean, this is something we sort of talked about. This is the opposite of the sort of sense of cannibalism. This is... Okay, right? yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of sexual imagery here. Um, my all-time favorite, though, some people might see this coming, is St. Catherine of Siena. Uh, so 1347 to 1380, mm-hmm. she's a Dominican tertiary. Uh, tertiaries, we mentioned this briefly, I think, in one of the episodes, but um, tertiaries were usually lay people who lived in the world. So you don't you are an official part of the order, um, but you do not sort of take the vows of anything like enclosure. You don't stay at the nunnery. Um, Catherine has money, so she kind of gets her way here <laughs> in some ways. Um, but she gets, you know, so she can be sort of connected to the Dominicans. She doesn't have to marry. She gets to take vows of chastity, but she also gets to sort of do what she wants. Um, one of the things she does is convince Pope Gregory the 11th, um, to move from Avignon back to Rome. We had a brief sort of discussion. of. Okay, yeah. We talked about she ended the Avignon Mm -hmm. papacy. Yeah, absolutely. So she's awesome. Um, Raymond of Capua writes her life, her (laughs) saint's bio. He knew her, you know, he respected her. Um, But he also clearly thought some things in her life needed to be cleaned up a little bit for the average reader. And the um, one of the things that he leaves alone um, is that one of the sort of aspects of her mystical union, um, she's very close to Christ, and she sort of, one of the things is that Christ bestows stigmata on her. Oh. So we talked about this with Francis. Uh, but she asks for them to be invisible, hmm. essentially, so they don't sort of draw attention, right? She, she wants to know she yes. has them, but she doesn't want other people to sort of see them or to stare. And again, right, remember, St. Francis is the only one whose stigmata have been sanctioned by the church. There's a ton of footnotes on that episode on that one. Um, and all of, you know, there are like nine papal bulls about it. And a lot of people still don't like the idea. That's why you have to keep having these papal bulls. Um, because okay. of what it says about how close someone who isn't Christ could be to Christ. What's interesting is that after Francis, a lot of the people who claim to have stigmata are women. So my favorite, I've written about her, of course, is Elizabeth of Spalik. But Catherine of Siena is another before Francis, actually, Marie Joigny has sure. wounds that might have been stigmata-like. Um, mm-hmm. And this is part of that sense of women feeling that their bodies are like Christ's body, right? Flesh and flesh. So why shouldn't women have stigmata? They are the flesh, right? So a mystical union could mean that you really sort of match up with Christ. <laughs> um, but anyway, so St. Catherine asked for her stigmata to be invisible. She finally, she does have this actual mystical union, by which we mean marriage, a mystical marriage with Christ. This is not an uncommon thing for women um, who envision Christ marrying them in various ways. Catherine's is fantastic because in her vision of her mystical union, Christ marries her with a wedding ring that is his foreskin. Oh, boy. Because, of course, he is Jewish, remember? Yes. It is also, by the way, why New Year's is a week after Christmas, 
New Year's wasn't always the beginning of the year, but it's been a holiday for a very long time because it's the Feast of the Circumcision. Oh. Yeah. And in Catholicism, it's the first blood that he ever shed for humanity. So he marries Catherine with his foreskin. That is the ring that he gives her. <laughs> wow. Yes. Love it. It's so phenomenal. Raymond, in the official biography that he writes of the saint, changes this moment to this fancy jeweled ring. And he describes it and what the jewels mean. <laughs> Which is all complete nonsense, because of course that's not what she said happened. Yes. <laughs> but he clearly decided that he could not actually, in an official saint's life, write down what had happened. So he censors it. Um, and we do have, I said, right, Catherine Bynum, Holy Feast, Holy Fast, um, has a great comment <laughs> where um, she says, right, that he bodlerized it. <laughs> Which he does. Right. Yeah, okay. I um, mean, I could see somebody being like, maybe this foreskin thing is not going to play very well back in Rome. Uh you know, I mean, the funny thing is that there are a lot of, not a lot, but there are definitely a few, I mean, a lot of women sort of have interactions with the foreskin, and there are multiple foreskin relics that exist out in the world. Okay. So this was a sort of known thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, because obviously circumcision was known. I mean, the Feast of the Circumcision, all this yeah. stuff was known. We get back to the ties to Judaism. So the idea, of course, that that would still be out there... And that that's something that really could still be out there, right? The rest of his body obviously isn't, because unlike most humans, he is immediately resurrected, <laughs> right? And bodily can go where he wants, heaven, etc. Yeah. But um, his foreskin could still exist. What? Yes. Yeah. Genius. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Love it. Anyway, so this is the sense of mystical union. You can see why... I mean, effective piety is extraordinary. It has incredible power. You can see why, in some ways, it's such great propaganda, but also how men felt it was getting away from them. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and a different side of this, so that is the sexual side. The other side is the mothering side. So this is Mother's Day. I figure we'll sort of perhaps end on this aspect of it. Okay. And we can go more into, like, as I said, love and hell next time. But... The mothering imagery, I said, like, Marjorie Kemp would sort of weep whenever she saw a male baby. There's also this phenomenal moment, and I do want to say Marjorie Kemp absolutely, definitely had visions of Jesus, <laughs> um, the adult Jesus, right? She absolutely served the bridal, bridegroom mysticism. It was very important to her. Um, and as the book sort of wears on, um, and by the way, she, hers is the first autobiography in the English language, I believe. She dictated it, but, okay. you know. And so there's this great <laughs> sort of sense as you move through the book um, where Christ is trying to get her to think more about the other parts of the Trinity, right? The Father, the Holy Ghost. And she doesn't feel as comfortable with that and doesn't like it as much, but she tries because he tells her to. And occasionally he gets annoyed because she's not trying hard enough, right? Because really, <laughs> of course, she feels closest to him right. as a man. I mean, it's it's the easiest part to sort of envision. Yes. But, you know, she's very open about that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but sort of wonderful. But her, she is also a mother. Um, she'd had at least 14 kids. Oh, my goodness. And she had postpartum depression okay. after at least one of them. Yeah. 
Um, she has a husband who's pretty cool in a in a general sense. Um, he sort of goes with her on stuff and lets her do what she wants mostly. And the postpartum depression, she is cured by a vision of Christ. Okay. And then she gets up and she asks for her keys to the household back. And everyone's like, you shouldn't give them mm -hmm. back to her. But he does, right? Her husband gives them back. And then okay. she's in charge of the house again. And she, you know, and so there's this very sort of, there's a great reminder on the one hand, right, that women were in charge of a lot of stuff. Women ran the households, right? And so that the, this sort of set of keys is the symbol of mm -hmm. her being in charge again. But also the great point that he is willing to put her in yeah. charge. You know, he believes her. He listens to her, right? He's a pretty good guy. And there's this, um, obviously, obviously, obviously today, incredibly incredibly relevant but it's always been relevant i mean just the fact that we finally sort of diagnosed postpartum depression yeah you know it's existed forever obviously and so this is one of those moments that has always been relevant but people today sort of notice it more right um and at the time of course some of the a lot of the people around her are shown to be let us say not terribly sympathetic this is true in general of the people around her mm -hmm. but particularly in this moment when she sort of needs them, they are not. But then the vision of Christ, right? He is. He is sympathetic and he sort of heals her. Um, but it's a really fantastic portrayal also of postpartum depression, right? Um, and Marjorie has a lot of visions of yeah. Christ as a child, which makes perfect sense. She is a mother, right? So her connection to the Christ child, to Mary as a mother are very, very close. Um, and she has this wonderful vision. Um, she has a lot. She imagines sort of swaddling Christ and stuff like this. But she has this wonderful vision where she imagines preparing a hot coddle for the Virgin and serving it to her. Okay. Nice. And that's clearly... I mean, it's just, it's just a fantastic moment because it's very clearly based on presumably marjorie's own preferences right sort of shortly after childbirth mm -hmm. but also you know sort of medieval practice modern practice right um that you know what does the mother want what would you prepare for her to help her feel better i think i got a cinnamon raisin bagel but right <laughs> um you know times change etc yeah but yeah. also also sort of don't yeah. right if cinnamon raisin bagels yeah. had existed or like Pop-Tarts or something. I'm sure that that could have been an option. But it's this sort of just great moment. It's in, this incredibly sort of domestic. Yeah. Specific domestic moment, right? Um, that is also a reminder of the ways in which... I think I'm also thinking about this more because all my students have been turning in all their final papers. And one of the plays they read is Susan Glassbill's Trifles. Which is a brilliant play for anyone who hasn't read it. You should go read it because it's only a few pages long. Um, it's sort of the, one of the beginnings of American realism, which Glassbill was partly responsible for. Um, she helps found the theater where Promise Sound Players, where Eugene O'Neill sort of starts his career, right? So she really is part of the foundation of American realism. And this play, Trifles, is based on a case that she herself had covered as a journalist 16, 15 or 16 years earlier. Um, and she herself had kind of sensationalized it as this woman who was suspected of murdering her husband. Um, and... The woman is eventually acquitted, various reasons, etc. But thinking about it later, Glassbill clearly sort of realized she'd sensationalized it and wondered about it. And she had a sort of aha moment, a revelation, uh, mm -hmm. when she 
as a um, journalist, went along to the house. There was a sort of tour, I don't know, for the jurors or whatever. Um, and she saw the woman's kitchen, and it connected to her. And so the play takes place in the kitchen, and it's the two, these two women who sort of are there to pick out something to take to the woman in jail. Um, and the men, there's sort of the county attorney and the sheriff, and they're looking around for evidence to convict this woman of murder, and they really need a motive. And they come in and out of the kitchen, but they never stay in the kitchen, because the kitchen is unimportant, right? Why would a man be killed of something because of something in the kitchen? Um, and it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant play. And obviously the women who are only in the kitchen, figure out what happened, figure out the motive, figure everything out, and then basically hide it. They tell the men in code um, what happened, but the men, of course, don't realize that that's what the women are saying. They're not listening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because they're using sewing terminology and the men don't get it. They think it's stupid, Mm -hmm. which, of course, trifles. This is where the title comes from. Um, The short story that she wrote was called A Jury of Her Peers. Um... Which, of course, at the time, this is before women could vote, women were not on juries. Um, So a jury of her peers, right? She couldn't have a real jury of her peers. Um, But the women in the kitchen can be a jury of her peers. So, But that way in which Glaspell didn't sort of think of this woman really as a fellow woman. And didn't really think about all the things that may have been part of this woman's life until she saw that kitchen. Um... It's a fantastic reminder of the ways in which the women in the Middle Ages um, see a lot of these moments, right? So they are made fun of by men for the emotionality and this domesticity, the way they see Christ as a very physical lover or a very real child. But at the same time, the women themselves know that that is, of course, the actual point of Christ. That is why he exists in the first place, is because he was needed to be mortal, to be a human, to live among humans, to live as a human, to be human, to feel what humans feel. Right? Um, And then in the end, having done all of that and understood their pain and their suffering, to go through something that was so unimaginable that it would allow all of these humans to get into heaven, right? And only he could do that because he's still pure, mm-hmm. despite having lived as a human, right? And so to, to recognize that about him, um, and it's something that women do recognize. And even though, right, men sort of saw it within very confined ideas of mortality, and physicality and could get a little uncomfortable when those confines were broken by sort of the sexuality um, or even the reality just of a domestic scene, the women really see the importance of that element. And they're right. And it's why there is this tension between allowing them to publicize their devotion, to encourage people to see the bread and the wine is the real body and blood, to see this as possible and to see it as important. And at the same time, there's this fear of what it could mean, right? Because if people feel that they can have a real connection, even a physical connection, right, with Christ, it starts to make things like priests and the hierarchy and all of that irrelevant. Yes. Right? 
if Christ dangerously close to talking directly to God yourself. Absolutely. Right. And there are women who come sort of to the point of saying, well, Christ, right. Not just Christ married me, but Christ confessed to me. Right. Christ heard my confession. Christ absolved me. Christ, Mm -hmm. you know, and that is clearly sort of a step too far. Women start to do things. Juliana writes the office, right? A liturgical office for the feast. Now, that's not the one that is ultimately part of the feast as it is instituted. Yeah. But it is celebrated several times. Dangerous. She's told, of course, right? I mean, she says that it was sort of inspired, that you know, divine inspiration. But nonetheless, right? You have a woman who wrote the office. Um, there are a lot of these moments, right? Women sort of writing things down that they have received in Revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That are basically theological treatises, which are not things women are supposed to be writing. Um, so you, you can definitely see how men become nervous, right? Um, and of course, making fun of women for a lot of this is one of the ways to try and get around that or discredit them. But there is something obviously brilliant about, about it all. But also, they're not wrong, right? If you believe in the physicality, then this is what happens. All right. Right. Yeah, it's like the, the just the logical extreme of uh, yes, everything, basically. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes, because we're just, we're just about out of time for today. Yeah, and we'll talk next time about women who get murdered and stuff. That uh, fifty minutes we were going <laughs> to keep this to has flown past but- forty minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> We're at an hour and a half right now. What? Yeah. You got you got excited. Um, but we'll sign off now. Oh, for real? And we'll come back and talk more Oops. next time about love and hell. And, uh, yeah. All right. So before we go, uh, we should let everyone know that we have a Ask a Medievalist Facebook group. Um, and you can find that on Facebook by searching for Ask a Medievalist. Yes. Awesome. And that's a good way. We we always post all of the episodes up there when we get um, when we get the new ones put up, which is usually Thursdays. But um, we both have actual day jobs, so we don't necessarily want to be wedded to Thursday. So just uh, join the group and keep an eye out. Um, we're on Twitter as at Ask a Medievalist. We are not strictly speaking on Instagram because this is an audio production. But if you want, we both have individual Instagrams. Mine is at pretense underscore soup. And Jesse is at Jesse Noose. Noose is spelled N-J-U-S. After the Norwegian, (laughs) the Norwegian fashion. Yep. I love it. Four letters, hard to spell. Yes. Yes. I think that's it. I think that there's no big announcements, right? Yeah. Yes. Happy... By the time this comes out, quite belated Mother's Day, but... Yes. Nope. Happy Mother's Day to all mothers. Yes, I hope you all got right. waffles and the thing that every mother wants, which is a nap. Yeah. Well, someone like Marjorie Kemp makes you a hot cuddle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I'm not I'm not totally sure what it is, right. but it, I would take one. Yeah, I was thinking that's the, the benefit of, like, giving birth at home, is you have more access to a kitchen than you do at a hospital. Where you're just like, the nurse is like, well, we got bagels. That's true. Or, yes, you know, I've got, I've got the hot chocolate with the powder I mean, stuff or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
It's like, it's something, right. but... More doctors anyway. and fewer germs and stuff, though, theoretically, in a hospital. Yes, <laughs> uh, definitely a lot of advantages to hospital births, also. Yes. Less dying these days. <laughs> after germs but assuming, assuming you survive, right. home birth gives you better food. Yes. You can, we leave, we leave it to our listeners to weigh. Right. <laughs> but be close to a hospital. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> We've gone on for a really long time. So it was great to talk to you and talk to you next time. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Thank you.